Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Can anyone hear me? Yes, we hear you, brother. The foreign record of Brother Priest today is May 16, 2017. It's third degree. Um, I see Brother Kedrick. I see Akeem, Shedrick. Robert, uh, this brother Lynn, is that you? Six seven eight nine zero zero. Yes, sir. I don't. I see the phone. I just see the, the a name. I mean, a city. I mean, state. Brother. Um, uh, Brother Bernard. All right. Um, basically, uh, Brother Kedrick, did you get a chance to watch the video? Um, unfortunately, no, I did not. I just remember. Okay. Uh, Brother Shedrick? Yes, I did, sir. Uh, what what is your feedback? Um, first, um, I would like to say that you know, I did expect exactly what you said the video was going to cater to, and he gave just that. Um, there was a lot of um, there's a lot of sovereign mythology in there. <laughs> um, but for the most part, there was an element in there that I thought was very interesting when uh, he was talking about the mortgage. And and I'm trying to remember this, how he explained it in the video when he was saying where uh, this mortgage company uh, basically cleared the title to the home. And I think the home had like $100,000 in it. So when that happened was I think the mortgage company charged him, uh, he paid the mortgage company $2,000 to do it. And then they turned around and asked him for 15000 for, I guess, the services or something like that. I can't necessarily remember exactly what the 15000 was for. But he was like, well, I don't have any money. And he was like, they were like, yes, you do. You have a house. Basically, they wanted him to take some of the equity out of the home and use it to pay them. And I think he did it twice um, where he uh, ended up getting, um, you know, taking, I guess, the whole 100000 out of the house or something like that. And uh, he paid them 15000 But then again, I think, I think he did it twice. 
and he ended up with like $66,000 worth of equity and the house. But what he ended up explaining was that the company who did the mortgage or cleared the title, rather, they figured out a way to write up a bond in order to clear the title on the mortgage or the house, however you want to say it. And I found that very neat because I figured if you can do that for a house, then you can do that for other things, uh, like other different types of liens and uh, debt. Um, and I well, I want to ask you this question. What do you, well, first and foremost, what do you think about that? That's my observation. I, I was just sitting here thinking that, you know, with that mortgage uh, situation, um, with them using the note or using the bond to pay off the debt, you know, me saying they can, you know, use that bond uh, creation thing for other different types of debt. And I, that's all I have on that. Other than that, the video was pretty good, but I just wanted to know what you thought about that particular observation. Well, uh, the whole idea behind it is you create a negotiable instrument that's going to produce a return that allows you to pay off a debt. So you can do that with anything. And, yeah, you can do that with anything. And the reason for showing the video is to sh put this in our mind of getting to think that way because basically what he's saying is he hired a company and he paid them a certain amount of money now i tried to find that company but you know i i, I think i found it this was years ago i mean this is like nine years ago i guess um i tried to find the company and I found a company with the same name, and I'm not sure if it's the same company. But nonetheless, the idea that you're saying about doing that with other debts, that is the whole point, and that's the whole point why I was leading into the last week talking about the Treasury and, um, and putting the stuff in there and making it work. So... It's a preparation. It's a mental preparation. Now, this idea with the treasury and how to do it collectively is really kind of new because, at least for me in my mind, um, that wasn't originally a part of the curriculum in that way. But part of, part of what we should be doing is putting money into the treasury and getting it back anyway but to do it where the returns are split up like that that's the additional part that is relatively new the idea behind what he's saying can be done with anything anything at all that is the point does that answer it brother you know it <laughs> well, I wish I felt that confidently when I answer stuff, but I never do. Um, 
I I never feel confident. I I'm like, am I saying it right? Am I saying it backwards? Like, I always feel that way. Um, brother Robert, did you get a chance to review it? Brother, um, I don't know if it's something with my settings on the computer, but uh, when I tried to hit the video, it's saying something about uh, I couldn't just had the wrong format and MME format, something like that. So I wasn't able to view the video. I tried to take, uh, change my settings, try to see if that may have been it. Um, I contacted Oxchedric. Uh, he, he had uh, told me another way to utilize it, but the program that he had uh, told me, I already had on my computer. So because of the fact of not being able to uh, view the video, on what I'm hearing, would it be safe to say, brother, like, because uh, I'm just just hearing what like, Shedrick was talking about with the video because I wasn't able to listen to it. Um, would it be safe to say that it's a, a situation to which, um, like, uh, the mortgage company where they are transferring uh, this to a trustee who in turn would uh, uh, utilize forms of liquidation to pay off debt? Is that uh, some of the premise of the video, brother. I'm trying to just you know, understand. Well, well, the way you described it, um, I have to agree. Now he doesn't say that, but the way you described it, I have to agree with you. Yeah. Now it's in depth how he does it, and I don't want to say too much until people actually see it. Um, how he does it is. You just, you got to really see it. But, yes, I agree with you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, I wasn't able to view the video, brother. My apologies. I'm trying to look into uh, the settings issue. And hopefully next week I can uh, give some feedback. What browser are you using? I'm using uh, Firefox Mozilla. When's the last time you tried the video? Uh, I did it yesterday. Yesterday I tried uh, utilizing the video. Okay. Uh, one moment. What the heck just happened here? Oh boy, this um. For some reason, this TalkShoe and Google Chrome are having some type of conflict. But um, nonetheless, um, yes, sir. I I remember seeing that that video, the the very first one, um, and the way... um, the way Brother Cedric uh, gives his uh, description of it, I remember we viewing it um, when we were having problems with the uh, university. My take on it is uh, there is a, I came across an individual named David Young who advertises on YouTube to cancel your mortgage by 
way of a promissory note. He charges a fee for it. I have looked into it, and his 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 setup is he runs you through an organization called Private Bankers, and they want you to join them for twelve hundred dollars a lifetime membership, and then once you do that, you go to David and you um you contract with him to do the mortgage to write the uh, promissory note for the mortgage, and he instructs you on how to submit the document after he pre-authorizes it through some process. He pre-authorizes it, then he gives it back to you with the instructions on how to submit it to the mortgage company. Also, he charges a fee up front, and I never got to the point where he gave me that that, that number but I'm quite sure it's past the $3,000 mark. But I was just wanted to say that um, I do remember viewing that video from before when you we were having problems with the university. Are you? You know what? Um, I don't know that individual. You said his name is David Young? Yes, sir. Okay. I don't know that individual, but I know that process that you're talking about and um i can tell you i don't i don't know if i've ever mentioned um this woman named mother truth who basically that was running rapid in detroit that very technique and actually that was running rampant through the whole so-called more sovereign movement that technique and um, people that I personally know that are um, in-laws to me um, have been injured by that same technique. And I'm going to tell you why. Essentially, if the promissory note or any negotiation, negotiable instrument is not backed by something, and if it's not backed by something of value or consideration, it is not going to be accepted. And what I found out is what those guys are trying to do in those movements is they have you pay them up front and they got your money. Now they say that they're going to give you these instructions how to submit this promissory note. And basically what they're trying to do is find the mortgage company in some type of default. So I'm going to just say, is real simple. It's real simple with negotiable instruments. Either they're backed by something of of value or consideration, or they're not. Easy way to see it: you write up a promissory note against the equity in your house. That promissory note has value, and the consideration is the equity in the house. So that promissory note has worth, and it will be accepted. There's no Secrets to it, tricks to it, anything like that. Too many of my relatives have been injured by that same so-called strategy of this secret method of putting in this promissory note to discharge your mortgage. Now, the good thing is that's not what 
Lloyd Williams is talking about in this video. That's the good thing. But you got to see for yourself um, when you really look at it, because there's other... Actually, I probably should have played the other video first, but because enough people haven't seen the other video, haven't seen this one, I'm going to just open up the other one uh, first before this one. So um, next week it'll be about that. But please beware, because I know from experience, believe me, not for me doing it, but actually, no, wait, let me, I forgot about that. Actually, I was given that, um, I forgot about this. <laughs> I was given that process, of course, through Madudi and Ali Muhammad is another one. So it's, it was Ali Muhammad and Madudi, I think Madudi introduced it to me. If I remember correctly, but anyway, um, I I'm sure that I have maybe on my hard drive somewhere. I have the actual promissory notes, um, and the laws that they use, and I totally forgot about it until just this moment. I'm gonna see if I can dig it up. Um. Brother Lynn. Assalamu alaikum. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I had an opportunity to watch all three of the videos. Um, Lloyd is, in in, in some cases, he's. Uh, He's kind of out there. I mean, he's the boy for sovereign mythology in, in many ways. But I got to say that, uh, you know, the second video in which he's dealing with, um, you know, basically the creation of uh, value, um, that that was that was ingenious because – what I saw in it was you basically, if, if you take the typical commercial process when dealing with how money is being created, your the, the consumer is typically an outsider to that process. So you 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 know you fund the said loan, you give it your energy, and then somebody turns around and hypothecates it, and through fractional reserve banking it just explodes um in value all from your signature and you're you're not a partaker in that except from the standpoint of um you know being the or or facilitating the transfer of your labor and your energy to pay that and in this case to me the 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 beauty of it is, is that you're taking the same process, but you're making yourself a player in that process from a standpoint of being able to, you know, really benefit from it as opposed to being um, liable, so to speak. So in that same money creation process, 
you know, in, in doing the discharge and then turning around and um, taking out another mortgage, you know, you, in, in the example that he gave, you just opened yourself up to over $60,000 of value that you never would have had before. And not not only did you create um, a liability, you know, in the form of doing the mortgage, you actually created an asset, which was an offset, um, which actually gave you the means to pay that back um, to a greater or lesser degree. So, um, yeah, from my standpoint, it just kind of, just kind of blew me away to to see that. And the thing is, is you know, you you can um, the repeatability of that. You know, you can keep repeating that. You know, that that can be a means um, by which to uh, you know satisfy that amortized over a certain period of time until you you know find another uh, means by which to settle and set off, be it by, um, you know, finding, um, you know, another bond servant, uh, somebody that's willing to perform or what have you. You know, the thing is that in the short term, you can actually perform yourself because, again, not only are you creating the liability, you're also creating the, um, you know, the asset in the forms of, you know, actual Federal Reserve notes that can be used to to, um, make those payments. So, you know, that was what I got out of that, Brother Ayo. So, do you, did you hear the company he was talking about that did it for him or allegedly did it for him? Allegedly. Yes, sir. I don't, I don't remember the name exactly, but I, I remember him making uh, making reference to it. Okay, um, as I I went to try to find that company, somebody said something. I can't really hear too well. Um, I went to try to find that company, and hello, my yes, sir. The name of the company is called Mortgage Alternative. Yeah, well, I didn't want to say it to anybody else. <laughs> Watch the video, but my bad. <laughs> um, uh, I see. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> One moment. <coughs> Lord, Lord. There's a lot to this that <clears throat> there's other stuff that goes with this because I was actively in this fight <clears throat> and for whatever reason <clears throat> the number one place on all America that was attacked with these mortgages was Detroit. <clears throat> and I had I hopefully I still have um records. I used to keep records <clears throat> of the um <clears throat> Security and Exchange Commission 
putting out well, not just them, the FBI, Security Exchange Commission, and uh, I can't remember who else was it, but they were putting out consistent updates on fraudulent mortgages being done by <clears throat> companies and which states were targeted and which cities were targeted the most. And Detroit was consistently number one for about three years. <clears throat> and so I was actively in this fight, um, <clears throat> and I was in, I was real estate investing at the same time. But I was um, relatively new, I guess. I was only in it maybe actively a year at that time, <clears throat> and um, I never forget it because my mortgage, one of my mortgage brokers. I think it was right at 2008. The, I think it was the first month. And I was talking to him, and he went into an all-out panic. And he was like, I might go out of business. All the brokers are pulling out of Michigan. And he was in a panic. <clears throat> and he was telling me all the brokers are pulling out of Michigan. For that reason... This like the entire state of Michigan was really, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> everybody was really pulling out information pertaining to protecting your house. <coughs> so there was land patents. There was mortgage elimination, discharge, all of that stuff was running crazy like you would not believe. And there were all these promises. I remember, <clears throat> I want to put this on the record while I remember it. Um, I can't remember this guy's name, but uh, this individual I was introduced by Madudi, and I cannot remember this guy's name. But I know if I talked to Madudi, Madudi would know. But this this individual was doing that thing, and we met him at at a Starbucks <clears throat> on Woodward Avenue in Detroit. And um, we met him at the Starbucks, and he was there doing these uh, so-called promissory notes to, to help people save their houses. So <clears throat> these people were paying him $3,000 on along that line right in front of me. Additionally, he was dealing with this school teacher who, this was a man who was a school teacher. I want these stories on the record while they're still in my mind for some, to some greater or lesser degree. Because <clears throat> this is all real, and this this was really detrimental, and it gives you a chance to see how I learned and um, what the Most High was pulling me out of. But <clears throat> this school teacher was a man; he was older. Um, he was uh, at the age of retirement, and his wife was ill, and he had stopped paying his mortgage due to these sovereign mores and this one so-called sovereign 
well, he started with these so-called sovereign Moors, and they misled him. And then he started dealing with these sovereign Caucasians, out of so-called sovereign Caucasians out of Canada. <clears throat> they all kept promising him to discharge his mortgage and all of that um, through these so-called promissory notes and everything. And he his he didn't tell his wife that he hadn't paid the mortgage, and she was sick very severely sick. So my duty comes to me about it. <clears throat> like, Brother Priest, can you help this guy? Now, I, imme- I immediately know, as, even now today, two couple of d- different things you can do, and I learned it because somebody did it for me. Bankruptcy, emergency stay, Boom, that stops any foreclosures or anybody. So I told him to do that, and I didn't ask him for any money. And that's because the guy that did it for me, um, he did the, he taught me bankruptcy. <clears throat> His name was Ishmael. He happened to be a student of Dr. York. But in Detroit, we all were, it didn't matter what background you came from. Everybody back then was intermingling. It could be Moors, it could be Nation of Islam, or whatever. We all would meet up at the Black Panther headquarters, and everybody got along and everybody helped each other. So anyway, um, Ishmael helped me, and he told me, Ishmael said, um, and he was older, Ishmael was like in his 70s, and uh, fully gray hair. He was like in his uh, mid to late 70s. And he said, I normally charge people $800 for this, but his words were, Allah is telling me to help you. And um, I'm not charging you any money. And I was very thankful. So when it came down time for me to use this information, I was speaking to this um this elder, and I said, let's do this bankruptcy because that's the only thing that's going to save you. Well, he keeps on listening to these moors and these sovereigns, and then he lets the bankruptcy proceeding lapse, and he didn't want to go that route. Another situation, this brother named Asafel, A-S-O- F-U-L, I think it is, who, again, I met through Maduti. This guy said that he wrote up the promissory note, <clears throat> sent it to discharge his mortgage, recorded it in the county at the Register of Deeds and all of that, and he was explaining to me what he did, but he did it on his mother's house. Okay, so his mother's house, he wasn't living there with his mother. Matter of fact, uh, Maduti and Asafo, those are their uh, Dr. York names, or whatever you call it. The, uh, uh, they both worked at the post office, the main post office. So they both had good jobs. So um, Asafo was not doing this on his own house. He did this on his mother's house. And as he was explaining to me what he did, I was begging him. I said, brother, where's your, your letter of discharge? He didn't have one. 
I said, how long has this been going on? He said, I put it in the county. He said, when I put this, all the people, this is, this is his answer to me. I put it in the county. They recorded it. They looked at me like, who is this guy? He knows something special. He's, who is this guy? And it's like I set a bomb off in there. I said, brother, where's your letter of discharge? He's like, I don't need that. Because I, I paid it off with this promissory note. No, you didn't, brother. You didn't pay it off. I said, how long has it been? He said, two years. I said, brother, at year number three, you're going to have a problem. Please take care of your mother. Please do something and handle that mortgage or do something. He did not want to listen to me. Now, I don't know if what I'm about to say was his mother or not because I had lost contact with him, but I found out that, that his mother was on the east side of Detroit. Found out that this woman on the east side of Detroit, 80-something years old, got put out of her house. <laughs> Next, the guy that was the leader of the Wayne County Moors, which was the um, study group that I had joined, um, there, that's where I met Kiyama. And um, <clears throat> he said that he submitted the promissory note. He had, um, he sent it to the bank or whatever, mortgage company. He had never heard, he didn't hear anything back from them. I told him, I asked him again, how long, like I asked everybody, how long has it been? He said, it's been two years. <clears throat> he said, I discharged it. I said, where's your letter of discharge? And I said, did you record it in the county? Where's your letter of discharge? He said, no, he didn't record it in the county. He said he didn't need to record it in the county because it was discharged on his um, credit report. I said, brother, it was not discharged on your credit report. I'm not even looking at it, and I can tell you that it wasn't. I said, you didn't record it in the county, so if you didn't record it in the county and it doesn't show up in the county as a discharge, it is not a discharge. They're going to put on public record that the mortgage was discharged. They're going to, that's going to show your letter of discharge will be on public record or the bank or whatever themselves will contact the county recorder themselves and denote that that mortgage is discharged. You didn't even record it in the county, so you have any, how, how can you tell me that you have any um, real remedy when there's no, there's no public record? <laughs> there's no public record. I can at least see if you put a public record, put it on public record, and they were corresponding with you and gave you some type of answer. You're telling me you just sent it to the bank, you looked at your credit report, and it said your mortgage was discharged. I said, it does not say, it will not say that your mortgage was discharged unless it actually was. So you have to show me that you, show me your credit report. He didn't want to do it. Now, I kept going, I was going out of the county all of the time. I was like there every other day. I was helping all types of people that I could help. I was handling my own affairs and I was trying to, I was just constantly teaching, teaching, just constantly 
every day dealing with this stuff and helping people get out of traps and spend all this money with these crackpots. So I'm down there one day in the county of uh, the Register of Deeds, and guess who comes in walking, but was the guy's name, the leader of the Wayne County Moors, his name was, we called him Mook. Guess who comes in there walking, but Mook's wife, to record on the on the, uh, the register of deeds, the stuff that I was telling them that he should have recorded before even going about all of that stuff. So he sends her down there, hoping I don't recognize her. This is my thought. I don't know for sure. But I was thinking he was hoping I don't recognize her because I only seen her once at that time and um, try to get it on the record. All this stuff he told me about how he didn't need it and all these guys told me they didn't need it. I don't know about a softball, but what happened with Mook? This is what happened with Mook. I put this on the record and it's probably in the second degree. But Mook, the SWAT team, he got the SWAT team out there. The bailiff came to evict him from the house. He takes a shotgun to the uh, the bailiff and tells him to get off his property and don't come back. He had taken a shotgun to the um, the electric company as well, and they called in the sheriff and they called in the SWAT team, and they shut the whole that whole part of the city down for several blocks. And the SWAT team was out there surrounding his house. And um, they told him to come out. So he had a standoff. And I told him exactly what was going to happen. This is the God honest truth. I'm not embellishing it. And this is the God honest truth. I told him what was going to happen. After three years, I told all of them this. After three years, what's going to happen is the county tax assessor is going to count up whether or not the county taxes have been paid, the property taxes have been paid by the registered owner of that house. And if your house goes into foreclosure because of the amount of foreclosures that were going on at the time, it was averaging out to two years before they would even make a move to foreclose. And I was studying all this rampantly, so I knew that this was true. Now, I told all of them, <laughs> three years, the county is going to come back and try to foreclose. If the mortgage company doesn't, the city will, via the county, foreclose on that property. So you may beat the mortgage by waiting it out, but you're not going to beat the city and the county because they're the local representatives of the IRS. So unless you have a discharge letter from the IRS, you're in trouble. Now, I'm saying all of this to say what you're going to be seeing in these videos is how I was guided, and I really believe this was divine guidance how I was guided to be able to comprehend what was going on. And had I not gone through that and studied these things, I would not have been able to see the bigger picture of bond servitude. I really know that from my own life experience because I remember how my mind was developing.
you know, and how I was able to see certain words. And then it, one day it just clicked. It clicked in court, but it clicked. And then all the scriptures came back to me. All the law was studying came back to me, and I saw it. I saw it so clear, and I see it clear today. But I'm saying that to say these are a few stories. Oh, let me back up. The one guy that was in the um, at the Starbucks, whose name I, um, I cannot remember, but he was a very, very skinny man, um, dark-complected. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember his name. Wesley Snipes had reached out to various so-called Moors in Detroit. And this guy was the guy that I'm talking about, and Maduti were involved with Wesley Snipes. I'm talking about the actor guy. And <clears throat> Wesley Snipes was trying to uh, claim to be with uh, the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors and trying to beat these taxation and discharge these taxes with bonded promissory notes and all of that. <clears throat> so, but duty as usual, whenever they would run into a problem, he would always bring it to me. And he would always say, you know, if you all can't figure out, priest to figure it out. So he brings it to me and he gives me all of Wesley Sipes' information. I still have it. Um, by now, it's probably circulating on the on the internet because they all gave me what they had done, the processes that they done that they did, and I had Wesley Snipes' home address, social security number, personal information, and I ain't never talked about this. So I'm just telling you, all of this comes from these videos that I'm talking about during that time period. I had all of Wesley Snipes' personal information. These Negroes had done all that so-called sovereign stuff for Wesley Snipes. And I was not, I wouldn't directly contact Wesley Snipes. I didn't want to do that because I felt like I don't want to be mixed up in that confusion like that. And he never really tried to speak to me either. But what I told them and I told my duty to relate to them, do not pursue this. I I'm not, I'm not, God is my witness. <laughs> this all happened. And I said, tell him, do not pursue this. So he kept, he, Wesley Snipes kept trying to pursue it with the same guy and <clears throat> ended up, um, Ended up where they couldn't really get it done correctly. He was getting responses from the IRS, and the IRS was like, this is frivolous, and you keep up with it, and you're going to be in trouble. And then Wesley Snipes ended up going, if I remember correctly, I think it was some people in Chicago. Has anybody ever heard this about Wesley Snipes, by the way, while I'm saying this? Okay, so did you hear about what he was doing with the the Moors in Detroit? You heard about that? Uh, I didn't hear about. I didn't hear about the issue that he had with the uh, the taxes. I didn't know, get uh, any specific details. Man, I was there, 
And here's the end result. He ended up trying to, Wesley Snipes ended up trying to deal with some Caucasians out of Chicago um, that were claiming to do the same thing. He got fed up with dealing with the Negroes, like they don't know what they're doing and all of that. <laughs> and that didn't work either. They were doing the same process, but they were claiming that they were private bankers and they knew better than these Moors did and all that. So he was dealing with that. And right after that is when he went to prison. Now, <clears throat> at the time that he was go he went to prison, all of the Moors were trying to in Detroit were trying to act like they were taking credit for um, beating the taxation for Wesley Snipes. Don't believe that stuff. He's not really in prison. How's he in prison? And he just released a new movie and all of this. And I went and told all of them. I said, you all are so delusional. First of all, you know, like I know, because I got the fact sheets. I got the faxes from the company in, um, or these people in Chicago that showed that they did the same process that they, you claimed you were doing. Said so they didn't have typos in it and all that kind of stuff. It just did not work. And it didn't work because it's not backed by consideration or value. And as long as you keep approaching that like that, you're going to fail every time. And you are lying to the people or you're misleading the people and you were trying to take Wesley Snipes for all that money. And I, and I told you, like, it's fraud and you don't know what you're doing. And I definitely don't want no money for it. But even if I did, I would not um, do what they were trying to do, sticking for ten and twenty thousand dollars. You know, <clears throat> this was rampant, brothers. And if you can hear it now, I'm I'm almost I'm ten years away from this. This was ten years ago in my life, but I'm telling you, the pain and agony that I was going through watching. The neighborhoods in Detroit just being destroyed, and then these so-called Moors coming around talking about their do your stuff, and you give them money, and they'll save your house, including Taj Tariq Bay. And I think I put that on the record before. A woman drove. We brought Taj to Detroit. A woman drove from Gary, Indiana, which is about five hours away from Detroit. She came to see Taj. She asked him on the record. I've been in my house for 20-plus years, and they're trying to take it from me. What do I do? And Todd Tariq Bay said, take the Moors Treaty of Peace and Friendship and stand on it. He said that on the record. And I knew then, that's when I kind of backed away from Todd because I knew immediately that that was crap. Forgive me how I'm saying that. But I knew. I hope you all hear me. <laughs> I have war and horror stories from that time period. But this stuff, my mind, when I was, when my mind had clicked in where I could see it and comprehend it, and I was doing things that was working, and I wasn't getting any resistance, there were no tricks to it, there was no secret information. It was none of that. It was basically opening up to you the form commercial code, reading it, and comprehending it. And, and, and once I started doing those things, then I started to see through all the lies. 
So as I was watching Lloyd Williams, I was dissecting it over a period of time, and I'm like, okay, he's saying this thing that I've never heard before, so I'm going to investigate this and see what's the root of it, and I'm going to find out if there's some solid truth in it. And sometimes with Lloyd Williams, I was running into a lot of things that were truthful, just not necessarily in the way he was saying it, but then there was a lot of stuff that was mixed in with Moorish mythology, sovereign mythology. Forgive me for being long-winded, but I'm really passionate about that. <laughs> I hope you all hear me. Brother, uh, Brother Bernard. You good? Shalom, Ak Bernard, Tribe of Judah. Uh, sure. You know, just listening, just listening to you, um, you know, on your past and all of those uh, stories you just shared right there, and then listening to Lloyd. You know, I watched the videos and listening to him. You know, it, it's kind of tough because he he reminds me of Gene Keating. You know, you want a straightforward answer, and he go he kind of beats around the bush to um, to give you that straight answer. And I said a couple of things that. Um, I was, doing some research. I was doing some research on it. You're going in and out, brother. Let me get by this window. Okay, so the brother, I mean, um, Lloyd Williams talked about HJR 217. Talked about use that to pay a debt uh, to a corporation. And I looked that up, and that didn't have anything to do with um, paying a debt to a corporation. And... Um, so I went back and did, looked at my notes on HJR 192 and uh, UCC 3-603 or tender of payment. And, um, you know, just kind of what you've been sharing in the uh, fellowship about uh, as a collective body. So will we use, I'm wondering, will we use that process um, and then also contact the, the Secretary of Treasury for some reason, I was the the, the information that I uh, was looking at. It says that the Secretary of Treasury is the receiver, and we're supposed to submit all of our debt obligations to to them to get debts discharged. And you know, listening to Lloyd Williams, it, that kind of confused me. So I kind of want your your feedback on that. And I did take some notes on uh, some of the stuff that he was saying because he he went into it about bank fraud, and he said that you have to. Um, because the bank really doesn't have no money, they create the money off of uh, the deposit that the customers deposit in there. He was talking about you have to request a disclosure of where the money comes from to prove, prove the fraud. Your feedback on that. And um, you know, lastly, what Brother Cedric and uh, Brother Lynn had spoke on as far as that mortgage, you know, he kind of confused me with that. I know he had said 63000 and he gave a round number of 100000 Uh I just got kind of confused. So that, again, those are just some of the things that um, that I got from that. But, uh, they talked a lot about the topic. I mean, you know, it, it's just hard to um, to get what I needed out, out of there. But I wanted your, uh, your feedback on the, um, he said the 1040, he said you're supposed to use a 1041 instead of the 1040. 
to uh to get all your money back from your taxes. Do you do you recall that in the video? I do recall that. Okay, yeah. So he says, uh you're supposed to say you made a mistake in filling out uh the, the I was it the ten the I guess the was it the ten forty one and you're supposed to get all your money back from eighteen? Is is that is is that is that valid? Is that factual? To the best of my knowledge, I have not been able to prove that. So that's about the best way I can answer that part. But okay, okay. Um, what about the what about the bank fraud thing? The disclosure. Well, that's that's legitimate to some degree because we see um, what you're doing is <clears throat> you challenge the bank on a couple of different things, and I'm gonna tell you how. When I got with Jaquin, um, this is maybe two years after Wayne County Moores were started. Uh, well, they were started before I joined them. But when I got with Jaquin, Jaquin is a paralegal and a real estate um, agent. So when he and I got together, who I met him through Maduti, um, I started to learn a, a lot about the legal way of things getting done. So I was able to learn how to crack through some of this stuff. But here, here's what it is. Because J me and Jaquin, we used to do this all the time, which we challenged um, you challenge all the bank codes through qualified written requests. He did this, and he got the the bank on their knees. He had them he had them totally defeated, and they could not move on him. He didn't do any of that promissory note stuff. All he did was a qualified written request with RESPA, Truth and Lending, those types of things. And he got them an estoppel, and they couldn't do anything. They were trying to negotiate with him from that point on. But, okay, so let me address the HJR 192 treasurer issue that you were talking about. All right, first of all, HJR 192, is, is, that was a resolution, so... I think we talked about before how it later became a public law. And I'm sure we talked about that, but it's uh, like stat 7310 or something like that. Actually, hold on. I think I might have it in my drawer in this cabinet. Uh, uh, yeah, I have it right here. Okay. 30... Eighth Congress first session. Well, well, this is more this is more to it than just that, but it, it's the thirty eighth Congress. Anyway, to just keep this short because um, I didn't want to keep us too long. Um, they turned it into a law. Okay, so how the law works, and it's very, very, very simple. Maybe we missed this. I don't know if we missed it or not, but I thought I talked about it in the second degree, but here's how it works. The government agrees that whatever debts 
the citizens, bond servants come up with, if they bring those debts to the United States of America, they have a civil, civic, and fiduciary fiduciary responsibility to discharge those debts. That's basically what HJR 192 is about. We'll discharge the debts. Now, the question is, how do you get the debt to them? Does anybody remember us discussing this? How do you get the debt to them for them to discharge? Remember, Sister Tora speaking on it a little bit, but I was wanting to ask you: Is that where the Secretary of Treasury comes in? Well, I'm explain how that works. Okay, how how it actually works? All of this secret information is not secret; it's all in the law. And anybody that's trying to sell something like they got some secret knowledge, when it's in the law books for you to read is really disgusting to me. How it works is HJR 192 being public law, being um, put into statutes at large, statutes at large of that which is in harmony and positive law with the uh, Constitution of the United States. The It's issued via discharge through bankruptcy court okay that's how you invoke the power of this so-called mystery hjr 192 public law uh i think 9973 stat whatever all right that's how you do it now here's what happens with the treasurer the treasurer steps into every bankruptcy court case and reviews every case. Now, he's not going to do it specifically himself or whoever they may be, male or female. Their office, the Treasury Department office, steps in and reviews it. This is why you are issued an official United States trustee. Oh, I was just about to ask you that. Okay. They uh, they assign you an official United States trustee who is looking into every individual case, and they're looking for whatever you put into that case to 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 notify where they can step in and where that they where they can't. Because if you don't know what to tell them, uh, you don't know how to what to put into your case, then they can't move on it. They're not gonna move on it, and they can't. And it's rightful that they can't. If you're incompetent, they have no business trying to do that for you. So anyway, that's where the treasurer comes in. Additionally, the comptroller has to talk with the treasury department. So that the comptroller, because the comptroller mediates between the treasury and the Federal Reserve Bank. That's the comptroller's job. They're the mediator. They're almost like, in a sense, I can compare them to an accountant. Ford, which is ironic because the IRS are accountants for the bankers, but I'm saying the comptroller has to check, make sure that the IRS's records match the Treasury Department's records. That's one of their duties, okay? 
So they're already investigating every bankruptcy. The public law is the discharge of debt, Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's, that's where the people are not. This stuff is baloney that these people are talking about. Now, when I first tried it in bankruptcy court, I tried to do it myself, but I was under some real heavy pressure, and I didn't fully study because I, I was I was a nervous wreck. I was under heavy depression and all types of things, so I didn't fully do it, and I and I got cold feet. I let the bankruptcy lapse. Then I went and hired a guy that I found in one of the local newspapers to do it for me. So I can't remember the order of events because eventually at some point in there, I met up with Ishmael. I think it's, no, I think Ishmael made it came second. After I did it first, I think Ishmael came second. Then I might have hired somebody. But whatever event, I can't remember the order. But when I got to this guy, I, I did the same thing I was taught by my teachers. You always want to have somebody that has the experience and knowledge help educate you and hold your hand step by step. So with that in mind, that's when I knew I needed to hire somebody. Crazy enough, 12 to 15 years before this happened, I was already into bankruptcies and knowing how to use them because I was reading Donald Trump books. Crazy, as crazy as that is, but it was, it's the truth. But I was such a nervous wreck, I just couldn't focus my mind. So I learned step-by-step step, every step of how to do a bankruptcy. Right, I start reading the law. I start paying attention to every single thing because I was more relaxed because somebody else was doing the paperwork. I I was paying attention to every single thing: the assignment of the trustee, the the uh, creditors meetings, everything, everything. And what I'm telling you is that law, public law, is enforced via bankruptcy court chapter seven specifically chapter seven this is another reason why I, this is my opinion and my my theory when you get a discharge from chapter seven they never give you an itemization they never give you an itemization because then they would it would be like you would know specifically what was discharged and you would see the transaction go forth. Okay, now, that's how you actually use HGR-192 is in the bankruptcy court. When you're in bankruptcy court, you can turn that bankruptcy court into a federal um, what is it? Uh, civil court to an adversary proceeding. Now you put in uh, all the all of the criminal violations uh, that the that the mortgage company 
violated, RESPA, truth and lending, so on and so forth, Fair Debt Correct, uh, Collection Practices Act, and you call them into federal civil court to prove for it on the record, proof of claim, proof of loss, under the pains and penalties of perjury, they have to prove in a federal civil court that they are an actual creditor. They have an account number, a a wet ink signature from you from contracting with them, uh, itemization and account record of all the transactions. And if they do not have that in a civil court in bankruptcy, it must be discharged. They will try to escape. When they try to escape, what you do is you subpoena the promissory note and all the records of that account. When they cannot bring it in, that that uh, so-called debt must be discharged by the federal court. Um, did I what did I miss anything, brother? Man, no, sir, you put it in there. So that's kind of tying in with the bank thing as well. That That's the fraud. That's the fraud. Exactly. And the other thing that we were doing, uh, this is uh, this is really all Jaquim at the time, was um, the audits. The securitization audits and the forensic audits. Okay, so Jakeem was already doing forensic audits and before I met him. Then once we started working together, we were sharing information, but he was focused on the securitization audit. And I just shared the little bit that I had with him, but he took off on it. So what we ended up doing is um, eventually uh, we were working on different cases with different people, contingent upon where they, what stage they were in with their foreclosures. And some of the cases we were working on, the banks quit and gave up the houses. They they sent the keys to the, uh, the said homeowners, uh, at least three that I can remember. I don't even remember these people's names because we did so many. But they were the banks were just closing up shop and quitting. Now, this is the key to what we were doing. All this might not make sense because I'm saying so much, you know, jumbled up here, but it'll come it's gonna come to you. Jaquim figured out how to crack into the actual pool by using the securitization number that's at the top, I think it's the top right of every mortgage. Okay, so he would, because he already knew how to do forensic audits, when he started doing the securitization audits, he was going in looking at the actual pools and, and whether or not they were trading the pools legally. Um, did they have, were they the holders in due course? He was coming back with robo-signers and all types of stuff. Now, here's where it really made a difference. He pulled out these laws because he was a paralegal on dealing with the straw man name. 
And he connected that with them doing um, unverified, un, that's not the right word, um, them doing inquiries on your credit report unauthorized, unauthorized inquiries on your credit report. Now, what, what he discovered is he, he pulled out a whole list of $1,000 fine after $1,000 fine after $1,000 fine. Now, let me make this clear. This is after he was already whooping the mortgage companies behind, and they had basically surrendered to him. They did surrender to him, actually. And it was a, it was a, a stalemate, in a sense, with him and the mortgage company. No promissory knows none of that stuff. Him doing a qualified written request with RESPA and all of that kind of stuff got them to a stalemate. And I saw all the documentation. He showed it to me, proved it to me. So I know for sure that this was real. All right. So what he found out was all these violations. So every time that they might run an inquiry or every time they would use your straw man name, he would hit them with the law and notice of a violation, and if the, and, and it would start to add up. So he would get it up to $50,000, $100,000 in fines against the said creditor. Now imagine he's a paralegal. He's sending this to them and telling them, listen, you better cease and desist. This needs to be settled and handled right now, or I'm coming after you for these uh, violations. Creditor after creditor would quit. We were doing this with different people. We did it on mortgages. We did it on on people, uh, just credit card, whatever. We did it. I did it with Min Ra, who used to be in the nation. I don't know who might remember. Let me see. Robert, do you remember Min Ra? Yeah, I remember him. I did it with Min Ra, and he won $32,000. In a credit card case, I did it also with. Um, matter of fact, not only did he win, if I remember correctly, the attorneys in the bank quit. They didn't even want to go into court anymore. They just decided because when he was doing it alone, and then I got behind him when we were doing it together, they quit. They didn't want to continue. That's the truth from what I remember, and he won by default, even $32,000. So anyway, so it, it's the same technique. Now, what I'm saying is simplify your thinking. Something must be backed by something of value. What was treasure? Sir, what'd you say? Oh, no, this is me. I was, uh, I got knocked off the call, brother, and I'm just announcing myself again. Okay. Something must be backed by something of value. Now, simplify your thinking. Let's talk about discharge and going into adversary proceeding in a bankruptcy court, which makes it a federal civil court. If they come on the record and lie in a federal civil court, and try to collect. 
There's a million-dollar fine for each lie. And a mandatory, I think is 10, 20, I don't know, certain amount of years in prison. A fine and prison time. I haven't done this in a while, so I can't remember the exact prison time and all that. But I know because I did this myself. <laughs> I did it for myself and I did it for others. And back then, I was heavy into it, trying to do anything I could to protect the people. So if they lie on the record, they don't have the promissory note, which means they're not the holder in due course. That's like if I owe Kedrick, but Shedrick sues me to try to collect what I'm supposed to be paying to Kedrick, which means there had to be a transfer of documents I had to be notified that this is the Cedric is the new holder in due course. They had to serve me, and it had to be in the terms and conditions of the original contract before they could do that. Okay, now let's assume that it was. Let's assume it was a legitimate transfer, but Cedric shows up to court claiming to be a creditor and doesn't have the original wet ink signature doesn't have the original promissory note. How are you going to prove you're the, you're the so-called creditor and you don't have proof that you're the holder in due course and you're trying to get money out of me? Now, do you think bankers, not even bankers, bank employees, do you think they're going to come into a federal court and lie when they know they don't have that stuff? No, they're not going to do that. They're not going to put their name and their body at risk to lie on the record and end up going to prison and being stuffed with a, a million plus dollars just to protect some bank. So when you get them in that position, that's when you have them, your hands are around their throat and you just got to know how to close the end game. And the end game is kind of difficult, but you know, it's not impossible, but if you can see what I'm saying, it goes back to simple things. Who's the holder in due course? Okay, now, look, let's reverse it. They can't prove that they had a, a loss. Where's your loss, uh, Mr. Shedrick? Where's your loss? Because, look, if if Brother Kedrick took a loss, if I have a contract with him and I didn't pay, legitimately he took a loss. If he transfers that over to Shedrick, prove that you lost, that you had a loss. Now, what's supposed to happen is that the debt is supposed to be purchased by Shedrick. So that would be evidence of a loss. Okay, so that the contract had consideration and value. I'm using higher language, but it's time for us to grow up even more today. So it had consideration and value, right? I didn't plan on talking about this, by the way. <laughs> I didn't plan on being here. But it had consideration and value because Shedrick purchased the debt from Kedrick. So that means the, the monies that he put up for the purchase is a loss. 
because he had to he paid out something, so he's minus that money. So that means if I owe him, I have to restore that to him because he's the rightful holder in due course. Is anybody confused? I'm like on fire here, but is anybody confused? Hey, bro, I just wanted to ask a question. Is this sure. to uh, what a lot of these banks and these other particular creditors utilize when they're dealing with the, uh, I think the company is called MERS, and they were creating these electronic promissory notes, but the people did not know that they created the electronic promissory notes, so they only create, or they only signed off on the physical promissory notes without having uh, knowledge that the electronic promissory note was also created. Is this similar in that particular number? It is similar, but you got to understand one thing. The electronic signature is legal, and it can be enforced. If the holder in due course actually has the physical possession of that note or negotiable instrument. You see what I'm saying? So it's similar, and, and I was fighting that same company, Mortgage Electronic Registration System. Um, I was fighting them and beating the hell out of them, too. And um, that's where these attorneys were getting fired and crying in court when I was going up against them. And they shut up, they uh, shut down totally in Michigan and pulled out. I sent some to their P.O. box. I think I talked about that before, but I was setting them up for a lien. <laughs> I was about to put a lien on the bank. And they got their mail and they closed doors completely in Michigan. Anyway, let me get back to where I was at. So look, Electronic signatures are legitimate if the holder in due course has the actual physical signature to prove that there was a transference or conveyance of said ownership or legitimate ownership or uh, possessorship, excuse me. If they can prove that in the court under the pains and penalties of perjury, they have a legitimate case. But here's the flip side of what I'm saying. Remember, I'm saying. If Shedrick is the holder in due course and he has all the evidence to prove it, he paid to uh, get this debt, and now he wants to collect on the debt because he actually took a loss, he paid out some money, he can come after me. But he has to prove all of that on the record. Now, what if I show up to the court and I got one of these promissory notes from one of these crackpots, Right? I submit that and I say, this is to pay off this mortgage. So the first thing they're going to want to know is where's the consideration or where's the value? They're going to investigate it. And when they find out that all it is is a piece of paper with some written laws on it and some so-called sovereign tricks, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to lose. I would have, I would have lost in that situation. But what happens when that negotiable instrument is actually backed by something? Hmm. Let's say it's back let's say it's backed by let's say you got a a a, a boat. 
And the boat is collateral or consideration for that negotiable instrument in negotiating the discharge of that debt or the payoff or settlement of that debt in a bankruptcy court for and on the record. I have something that has an appraised commercial value. I write it up on as a negotiable instrument. I can pay it off if the value matches, of course. I can, Or if they just decide to settle. So the bank might say, okay, we'll take a lien on the boat for a payment. But you're going to see the next couple of, well, you're going to see the next few lessons um, Question, sir. Why? So now, why? Why can can you use the example of HJR one ninety two? Which can you use that instead of the boat? HJR one ninety two is a public law. Okay. I'm, okay. Now, okay. let me show you. You write up a negotiable instrument. You put the public law on it, which is what they do with those promissory notes. Thank you. They put the... Yes, ma'am. Thank you. They put the public law on these promissory notes. They put AJR 192 in the public law, and then they say that's their payment. Now, theoretically, what, what it's saying is the United States promised to pay so I'm going to put this on a negotiable instrument, and I'm going to use this to pay this debt. It's already in the law books. But the problem is you can't write up a promissory note, negotiable instrument, to pay off a debt. And, Brother Bernard, you're the king of knowing this without a promise to perform and a signature that promises performance. Now, what I'm saying is when you do a Chapter 7, you're already using HCR 192. Right. So if you get it through and get it on the record and you fill out your documents correctly, you have invoked the public law. If you put HCR 192 on a negotiable instrument and you try to use the negotiable instrument to pay off a debt, if it's dishonored, according to UCC, there's discharge. But it's only discharge where the negotiable instrument has actual consideration and value. So what I'm saying is the negotiable instrument has to be backed by a signature of a promise to perform and pay it off. And you cannot tell me that the treasurer, that you have a piece of paper with the treasurer's signature, the original wet ink signature that says that the United States agreed to pay that off according to HGI 192. But they have agreed to pay it off. This is why they send in their trustee when you go into a bankruptcy who has uh, power of attorney 
acting on behalf of the United States and the Treasury Department to invoke HJR 192. <laughs> Maybe I'm talking too fast, but do you understand what I'm saying, brother? Man, this is beautiful. This is private administrative process at its finest. Yes. Shalom, Brother Priest. Yes, sir. Just my observation um, from what we're discussing tonight. This would really, it really pains me now that we're having this conversation um, in regarding to the the neglect that brothers have constantly, you know, applied to this process. Because what it also demonstrates is their very lack of comprehension of currency. If they don't even understand the process of eliminating debt or in some way creating a currency, because you're trying to create a, a form of currency or tender to pay off the debt, so we'll say it that way, then how exactly would they understand how to create their own money or currency for a nation? How would they understand how money works? But I also want to say I think a lot of the brothers, when they applied the process in terms of creating the negotiable instrument, I think they may have uh, considered what the United States does. And they think, well, if the United States can print out money just out of thin air, I can do it too. <laughs> but the problem with that thinking is if you really look at what the United States may actually do, I don't think they really print, you know, just print money out of thin air. It's backed by something. I mean, at this particular point, we we rationalize that, but we, you know, try reasoning with the people on the street who keep doing this process over and over and over again, uh, who think they can just write up a promissory note and just discharge uh, uh, a student loan or uh, a mortgage on the house or uh, a car note or anything like that. Um. It, 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 this this lesson alone just speaks volume, and it really just kind of shows how much more long we, a long way we have to go until we really, really understand what we're doing as a people and where our successes are coming and why we won't get to these successes unless we can, you know, continue to, you know, and, unless we stop, you know, doing these same processes that keep putting us in jail or, causing us setbacks, and I yield. Brother, these Negroes are not going to get it. And, and, and I'm saying that, and I'm saying that with a heavy heart, but really, man, if you can't get out of idolatry, if you can't see through that, you don't have a chance in hell trying to understand commerce. And here's the problem. Commerce is not difficult is very simple. But because the people overthink it and they try to they add their conspiracy theories and everything, they don't see it. So look, let's break it down. Very sure. simple. Sir, go ahead. 
Yes, sir. So, I mean, I just wanted to interject this before we moved on. So, basically, when dealing with the this whole concept of, you know, having HCR-192 or some reference to this law on a negotiable instrument, would you say that the the major misstep of, you know, most of the guys that are trying to apply this is that they don't comprehend the law of negotiable instruments? Because even outside of HJR 192, there's there's principles that um, outline how you're supposed to deal with negotiable instruments. So in knowing that, and knowing that, you know, as you've always said, um, you know, you need a promise to perform, that should automatically, to a reason in mind, had eliminated um, having to reference a public law as the final step to um, actually being able to successfully discharge. Uh, so, I mean, would you agree with that or would you disagree with that is what I'm asking. I'm not sure that I even understood. I'm trying to still process it. Um, you're saying if they don't understand negotiable instruments that they are just trying to jump to the final step as the solution? Exactly. Because I- if you, if, right, right. Because if you understood a negotiable instrument, then you would know that, you know, these things that you're you're expressing as far as you need a promise to perform and you need a signature denoting that, you know, so you, you got to have a, have a bond servant. You just can't, you know, stop with making a reference to some statute. Because it, even outside of that, even if you were – Say just operate in the commercial world with using a promissory note. You got to get a signature from somewhere. So why does that change? Because you're dealing with the government. I agree, but I do agree. But let me make clear why I agree. Because the, the, the statement is based upon they don't comprehend negotiable instruments. Well, they don't comprehend negotiable instruments. But if you go in and fill out bankruptcy, you are not bringing in negotiable instruments. So you do have to comprehend how they how and why they work. Because you can have an attorney do a bankruptcy for you, and you don't know what the hell is going on, and in some cases he might not know what's going on. But if you understand the simple principle, the only real thing of value, you got to really hear me. The only real thing of value is your word. And what I mean is your agreement your commitment, your confession. You don't contract with somebody in any capacity unless you plan on fulfilling your agreement. That's the real money. Because it's it's labor for labor. It's shaking of hands and coming to an agreement. That's all it is. 
literally. I don't care if you're going up against Microsoft and you're suing Microsoft. It's going to come back down to this, labor for labor, service for service, or what are the terms and conditions of the contract? Did you honor them, or did they honor them, or dishonor them? So if you're thinking that your solution is writing up a negotiable instrument to try to satisfy this said debt, and you don't comprehend that you don't even need to write up a good negotiable instrument, you can walk right into the bankruptcy court, exercise HGR 192 through Chapter 7, and listen, second-degree lesson. Discharge is displacement of charge. It's uncharging your Social Security number as the bonded obligate. Charging it back to the United States of America. Discharge is displacement. Now they have the responsibility to pay it. HJR one ninety two public law. You just that's what you just did. You cannot get to this comprehension of what I'm saying until you really analyze the simplicity of it. It's not hard. Anybody confused? Yeah. Sir? So essentially, the execution of HJR 192 is is written into the bankruptcy law as doing the Chapter 7. And in doing the Chapter 7, you automatically trigger the trustee to come in with the power to <laughs> execute the discharge according to that law. Is that essentially correct? Yes. Right here. So, second degree. No, third degree, early third degree, slash second degree. Affidavit of insolvency. What the court does, you can do. We just don't know any better. And the point is, when you look in the scriptures, particularly when you read the old, the said Old Testament, they're walking up to the door of the the nation or the temple or the, uh, well, excuse me, it would be the temple slash government headquarters, treasury part of it, right? The door where they're paying atonement money and all that, right? Sin offerings, atonement money, all of that, right? So, look, we handled it ourselves because we were a different caliber of people. If we had a debt, we would we could walk around, we would walk around in shame. That's how serious we were and how honest of people we were. We we were we knew that beggars can't be choosers. Meaning like you owe somebody. Don't walk around like you don't, like you Mr. Big and Bad. You're a debtor. Now did a transgression cause your debt? 
Well, yeah, did you breach a contract with them? That's a transgression. As simple as these words are, I know that the concepts, if particularly for new people, would just boggle your mind, but you got to simplify how you look at it. Make it as simple as you can possibly think. So, whatever I agree to with somebody else, I'm obligated to honor. Therefore, I give that thing that I agreed to value. Is anybody confused about that? I agree to it. I give it value because I have agreed to it. How can somebody use that in a, in a how can somebody deceive you with that same technique? Can anybody give me an example? They, they, an individual would make the, the contract and agree to the terms of the contract and then default. The default would be the deception. That is true. What's an alternative way? What's the opposite end of that, that they could do that same thing, that somebody could do that same thing? Other than the contract work. I don't see. That's it. But how is the contract fraudulent? In its terms and conditions, they lie. They lie. Or, look, let's break it down to street game like this. Oh, man, I got this phone. This is the top of the line phone. The phone costs four hundred dollars. Give me a hundred and it's yours. Now the guy that's doing that pitch knows that that phone is not worth four hundred dollars. It's not even worth four dollars. The clown buying it know that too. Well, not necessarily. Now, that's the, that's what I'm saying. The seller of this is deceiving the other party. He's inflating the value in the mind. He's inflating the value in the mind of the other party, intentionally deceiving them. Oh, man, if you can the magic, go ahead, brother. Go ahead. In that scenario, that's the fraud. So improving the fraud. He used de- he used deception in in the sale in the, in that in that transaction. So well, I mean, because of that, you, I mean that's a small claims court type of case, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So, but because you don't have a well, I guess well when two two uh, that's a contract that's been dishonored. Because uh, you got two parties, um, so I guess the uh, the defendant has to prove and he's been frauded and get his money back and sue for damages. Yes, 
Exactly. But what if he doesn't sue for damages? What if he doesn't even think he's been defrauded? Was he actually defrauded? <laughs> Man, that's a trick question. Well, <laughs> then he fell for the okie doke. Yes. <laughs> look, look. The 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 buyer values in their own imaginary mind, or maybe they're in the same mind. Maybe in their world, that phone actually costs four hundred dollars. In their world, now that I mean, legitimately, in their world, they value it at four hundred dollars. In their world, but everywhere else outside of their world, they value it. At four dollars. So, if I'm a con man and I find out that these people over here believe that this phone is worth four hundred dollars, and I intentionally induce them into this purchase, excuse me, intentionally induce them into this purchase. Me knowing that everybody else thinks it's worth $4, but I know that he believes it's worth 400 and in his world it is worth 400 Did I defraud him? <laughs> that sounds like the rest. That sounds like, that sounds like the rest? How is it the rest? Well, I was sitting here thinking in my mind, you know, the the guy is, you know, or let's say the seller is selling the phone for a price that he knows is not necessarily the price, even though that is what he's willing to charge for this particular phone. Um, but the guy who is purchasing the phone you know, he may cannot necessarily buy for that price. Maybe he didn't even try to bargain for the price. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think we'd have to, you know, go in a little bit deeper into how they, how they would have contracted or something like that. Well, listen again. The one that I'm selling it to, Mm-hmm. Value at four hundred dollars. You hear it, brother? Okay, I see what you're saying. Yes. So did he, did I defraud him? No, the one who valued it at four hundred dollars. That's what he was willing to pay. Not for that's not fraud. Okay, now let's do straight up and down transaction here. Gotcha. If if he values it at $400, it does not matter if nobody else in the world values it at $400. Right. That is not fraud. Now, if he's willing to do that deal consciously, that is not fraud. I got you. However... If 
you reverse it, and it's not worth $400 anywhere. And it's just in that individual's imaginary mind. I got you. What do you say, brother? I was saying, just look at the Jordans. There you go. The big ballers, too. (laughs) That's it. Like, it costs, what, like $8 to make it over, what, in China? And they come over here and they mark up the price to, like, what, $100, $200 a pair of sneakers? There you go. And it's crazy because, like I pointed out last week, you got the share price is considerably less than the pair of sneakers. <laughs> mm. Yes, sir. So now let's go back to value. We both live in the same world, and this phone is valued at $4. And I try to sell it to this guy for four hundred. If he purchases it, did I defraud him? No. No. Why not? Because even though you because even though the guy who was selling it for whatever value he wanted to sell it, if you bought it for the price that he was selling it, you go into it consciously knowing that that's how much you're going to pay for it, then there was no fraud. There was no duress. Okay. That's correct. Now, that was a kind of a tricky way that I put it because I'm trying to see if, if we're following here. Gotcha. Now, we live in the same world. That same phone is valued at $400. I mean, I'm sorry, it's valued at $4. I'm trying to sell it to this guy for $400. He does not know the value of it. And he buys it for four hundred dollars. Can he sue me? Yes. Why? Because he wasn't knowledgeable of the price. He didn't know that it wasn't four hundred dollars. He can sue me because he didn't know. Well, the guy who tried to sell it to him for four hundred dollars knew. Well, let me say it this way. The guy who sold it to him for $400 knew that it wasn't $400. He knew it wasn't $400 when he sold it to the other guy. The guy who purchased it for $400 didn't know that it wasn't $400. No, I, you know what? No, he can't sue you because even though, <laughs> even though you did purchase it, you bought it for what you thought it was worth. <laughs> you thought it was worth $400. So, no, you can't sue because you thought it was also $400 when he sold it to you. Even though you didn't know the, the that actual price, the guy who sold it to you for $400 said it was 
all sales, I guess, at this particular point is final. So you bought it for what it was sold for. Can't sue. Sorry. Okay, that's correct. The tricky thing is where does the fraud come in (laughs) is when there's not full disclosure of the facts. So what's supposed to happen in this case is what's really supposed to happen is and how you could get sued is if the one that's buying it for $400 can prove that you did not give them full disclosure of the facts. Okay. Then they, they would have a they would have a they would have a means to sue. That would be something the court could hear. They were induced to it into it. They were tricked into it. They weren't given the full disclosure of the facts. But wait a minute, this is strange because I go to Walmart and I buy a damn gallon of rice milk. And I know that what I'm paying for it is not what they pay for it. I have no idea what they pay for it, but I know that there's a markup on it. So can I sue Walmart for this this rice milk to get my one dollar and some cents back? No. So it's a real sticky situation. But listen, no matter how you look at it, whatever I value and I agree to, I might value it. My brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles might value it as something that's worth millions to us or like how Jordan shoes are. They're worth hundreds to us. But to the Chinese people, they're worth pennies. Essentially, I'm talking about idol god worship. Mm. <laughs> okay. Are the Jordans your god? For Negroes, yes. They're a god for Negroes. Excuse me. Whatever somebody values something at, as long as that you're not defrauding them, they're going to accept that for what they value. They're accepting it for value. They're accepting that for what they value. I might be saying too much here because it might be kind of confusing. Um, no, that makes sense. I... It does. Okay. Now, if you if you see that, then it makes you be even more responsible for knowing what the hell you're contracting yourself into. Knowing the value of something. Now, what ended up happening is, even during the time of Moses, understand there were always shysters that would come about and try to defraud the people 
and had them believing that in their in that individual's world is worth four hundred dollars. Just because they believe it, that doesn't mean in their world that it's actually worth that. Taking advantage of the people, misleading the people. So there had to be what you call regulatory law. So in the mortgage field, it's the same. There's regulatory law, truth and lending, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. In commerce, it's the same, regulatory law. Set up so that if somebody does actually legitimately defraud you and trick you, you have remedy. But if you live your entire life and you die not ever finding out the truth, the other party that committed that fraud upon you is not off the hook. They actually defrauded you. And they got they got rich off of you, off of your ignorance. And had they properly given you the right information and you still made the choice to go with it, then they didn't defraud you. Salama. Yes, sir. So now, in that, in what you just explained right there, that's where the United States government frauded the people, and the HJR is the remedy. And I and I say that because every individual soul that's born, we we have been um, turned into chattel property, and that birth certificate is our bond, and all our future work and future labor. That's the promise that uh, uh, the promise to perform, and so they co- they collect that off of us through taxes, uh, property taxes, uh, payroll. They get the money off our paychecks, and because they've done that, they know that um, they duped us, but they gave us a remedy that we don't never access, which is the HJR, if that makes sense. That makes sense, but my question to you would be, Prove that they did that to us. Well, they, they, uh, the straw man, you know, the in, in all capital letters, which the, which they gave to us and put that on the birth certificate, um, and 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 the social security number. That's the that's the inventory number, and I know, uh, I guess from childhood to eighteen, they, um, they. I, they, they they invested it. They're making they they're making money off of it. And uh, every time you look at your paycheck, uh, the FICA and the Social Security, they're deducting money off of your labor. And until you um, well do what we're doing, which is get with a get with a body of people and correct your status, and and you utilize that remedy, uh, you can discharge all your debt obligations with the remedy that they gave us. Now you. Lynn, how would you respond to what the brother just said? Are you there, Brother Lynn?
Okay. I want to challenge you, brother. Bernard. All the stuff you just said that they did to us, we did to them first, and it's in the Bible. <laughs> now, you think about this. Did they really defraud us if we did it to them first? Now, really think about that, brother. Well, I would say this. Now, they took it a step further with uh, identity theft, claiming that they us and uh and how they made money um ill gotten gains well my question to to you would be where did they claim that they were us well they claim that <laughs> Well, and, and over in Israel, they claiming that they Israel is well. They they claiming they Israelis. They claiming that they the Jewish. That they they descend from Abraham, and uh, even though they descend from Esau, and not not to make it a black white thing, but these promises and the covenant have has been given to us, even though we we guilty of idolatry. And uh, until we can correct that and come back to keeping the commandments as a body of people, then I, then we can reclaim those promises and we will be blessed again, as it says in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. The Most High give us all of that if we come out of the idolatry, uh, keep the commandments, uh, we'll get those blessings that we're entitled to. But as long as we continue to uh, church on Sunday, eat pork, uh, disrespect the Sabbath, you know, we, we're going to get punished for that. So, and that's where all of our wealth Quinn. has been stolen, stolen from us. How clear? How you? Well, everything you just said, I'm telling you, I'm not going to do it, but I'm telling you, I can rebut everything you just said. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I, well, I need to hear it. I need to hear it. Come on. Okay, first of all, the people over in Israel, they call themselves Israelis. Second of all, they're not Edomites. There are no more Edomites on the earth. They've been gone since the time of David. So there are no more Edomites. Now, those are Ashkenazis. Ashkenazis do not descend from Edom, period. They descend from Yafeth. So okay, that's one one thing. So now we got an issue here because a lot of people teach this, and that's why you don't hear me ever teach Jacob and Esau because I know that these people don't know what the hell they're talking about. They teach this when it clearly states in the scriptures David went in there and slaughtered all these Edomites except for two. And those two had some offspring. And then those those um, two, they became Amalekites. So there were no more Edomites after them. They became Amalekites. Now, that's a whole other matter of law, but I'm saying no Edomites exist. They've been gone for centuries. <laughs> okay, next. Why is it that the people over there claim to be Jews? Because they're not claiming to be Judah. See, they claim to be Jewish. Why are they claiming that? 
because they're tying back into the original covenant, which had nothing to do with just bloodline, just the Israelite bloodline. The Hebrew faith, anybody can be a Hebrew, right? Now let's look at us. We spew hate out on them when they have a right to be a Hebrew. Now they can't be an Israelite because they're not is they're not descendants of Israel or Shem, so they can't be Israelites. Can they be Hebrews? Yes. Now look, when you apply this, we did it to them first. We bonded them. We removed them of their names. Matter of fact, in the scriptures, we did it to Edomites. Edomites did it to, well, Esau did it to Jacob or Jacob's descendants first. Then then after Jacob fulfilled the debt, Jacob and Esau reunited and squashed the beef. I did see that. Okay, so there was no more animosity between Jacob and Esau. Then we turned around, the descendants, the Israelites turned around and bonded the Edomites for 400 years. They just mysteriously disappear off of the face of the earth. Did they get killed off? No. What happened? We bonded them and we put our names on them. So when you're looking at some of the people in the scriptures that have Israelite names, some of them are actually other nationalities. Just like today, Israelites over here call themselves Americans, Negroes, Blacks, all of that. But historically, we're Moors and we're Israelites. So these Negroes that don't know that, they don't know that that's them that's called Jew. They don't know that. Why don't they know it? Because in commerce, whenever there is a transgressor or a debtor, you are to remove their name from doing business because it is an honor to be able to wear your free national Name, and I'm saying name specifically. They also remove you of your title rights because you are a debtor. Here's why. You owe me money and you won't pay me, Edom. You have to go into bond servitude, Edom. You cannot wear your title and everything that you had a title on now is under my control and my possession, my possessory rights. All because you breached. Yes, go ahead. So, let's, and, and this is not to necessarily sway from what you're talking about per se, but let's take it to kind of like business, so to speak. So, like, let's say, for instance, a business was to go uh, into debt to another company. Now, this company... Uh, you know, they done went through the default process, and uh, now the company would basically, uh, I guess you could say buy them out, so to speak. Let's say they had the privilege of buying them out. They could buy out the company that's in debt to them, and then they can change the name. 
and then they can apply the rights, the company rights that they have uh, as a creditor company to the company that's a debtor company, and then they can basically have that run like a, a subsidiary to the uh, creditor company. Does that sound about right? Because that's basically what you just said, what you were describing, the relationship between uh, Jacob and Esau and modern-day people who are uh, debtors to creditors. What happens to debtors when they are in debt to a creditor? They have their their titles removed and their rights removed. Do you understand what I'm saying? I was trying to relay that to, like, how they would probably do in the business world, but... I don't know. That's exactly it, brother. It's okay. all the same. It's all the same. It's my point. It's all the same. It's, there is no difference. One moment. Listen, wherever there's a debtor, here's what happens. Debtor, you can't go earn money and not pay me back. So everything you earn, you have to set a portion aside. Really, everything you earn, I'm supposed to get my money back first. Now, look, let's use something simple. This, uh, this might this subject might be really vast, but I'm telling you, although you might be a little confused here and there, I'm telling you, is going to click. You're going to be walking around one day and it's going to click. Okay, so listen. Um, this is going to sum up everything that's going on on the earth in this matter. The United States is a debtor to the international bankers. So that means, well, first point, what is the lawful money on the earth that is universally accepted as far as a form of currency? It's gold and silver. Okay. So globally, the whole world accepts gold and silver, so everybody on the earth values gold and silver, and we all agree on that. Started by Abraham, but we all agree about it. Okay. Now, that means when the United States was using gold, and they went into debt to the international bankers. The international bankers collected every piece of gold to go towards the debt that the United States owed. So the United States called all the persons to deliver their gold, turn all their gold in, right? Because the United States has to pay this debt to the international bankers. Now, if the lawful currency on the earth is gold and silver, and the United States has no gold and silver, they can't do anything, they can't even eat without gold and silver. They have nothing to buy food with. They have nothing to pay people with. They can't pay farmers. They can't pay the military. They can't do anything. They would die in a, probably a couple of months. The entire country would have been a bunch of dead bodies. 
because they can't do anything. So, what had to happen? This is ancient. This is not modern. They had to issue the international bankers don't want their debtors to die before they get their money back. So what did they do? They issued fiat script. Artificial currency that they can circulate amongst themselves. Having no real power in possessorship. Anybody confused about that so far? Okay. So everything the United States uses in Federal Reserve notes, why can they not print them? Is because they got to get permission from the international bankers via the Federal Reserve Bank because their debt is being monitored. Everything they do in using Federal Reserve notes, the United States has no possessor rights over it. Now, if you understand that thus far, that means they're slaves have no possessor rights over anything as well. So the United States has to acquire gold and pay back all the gold to the international bankers in order to get out of debt. But what they did was they pledged the debts to their bond servants. And the bond servants are working off the debt for them. The bond servants can only circulate fiat script, but the fiat script is valued at a percent in gold and silver, so that's how they balance the national deficit. Now, whose debt is it really? Who does that debt really belong to? It really belongs to the posterity of the U.S. and the government officials who made those contracts. It doesn't really belong to the slaves. Thus, the United States must provide remedy, HJR 192. They can't circulate gold and silver. Because they all go in the silver to the United to the international bankers, they cannot circulate it. That's like if I owe you a hundred dollars, and that's all I have is a hundred dollars. I give you the hundred dollars. I don't have anything. I can't buy food. I can't, you know, put gas in the car. Nothing, right? But then, if I don't, if I'm not able to go to work and earn my way, I can't pay you the $100 that I owe you. So you have to give me a means to be able to do that that denotes that I owe you. Hint, Federal Reserve Note. 
this note is referring to all debts, public and private. So the note itself is like a promissory note. The Federal Reserve note is a promise for me to pay back you. But in the meantime, this allows me to circulate, go to work, get food in my stomach and all that while I'm working at a percentage to pay you back according to every note that I have. Anybody confused? Because I, I don't know how I'm sounding. I'm just trying to explain the best way I can. Uh, you're on point, brother. You're on point. Okay, okay, okay. So if you see that, then that's why there's Federal Reserve notes. Now, what the United States did is they realized that they can continue circulating Federal Reserve notes forever, never paying off the debt, while their bond servants are actually working off the debt a little bit at a time. They realized that. But that does not incriminate them when you did the same thing to them first. When your forefathers invented this technology, understood this technology, put it on everybody on the earth, particularly King Solomon, who was the master, and he bonded he bonded Israelites too, but he bonded to everybody walking on this earth. He bonded them and made them pay him tribute, okay, which, of course, he was saying was for the most high, but still, he was the representative of the entire earth. Now, we did it to them first. So where did they go wrong? What did they do wrong? That's my point. What did they do wrong? We transgressed. We broke the law. They put the same thing back on us. So here's the problem. When you're talking to babies, they're angry. They just find out who they are. They don't remember their name. They don't remember their culture. And they're angry because they're getting their behind spanked. And they don't like getting spanked because they don't even know what they did wrong. Like, what did I do wrong? Why are you spanking me? That's the problem with Negroes. Now, then, then here comes along Moors and Nation of Islam and Israelites and, uh, and, and all of this African people. None of them telling them the real truth about government law and commerce. None of them telling them that. And they still don't know. What the hell did these Romans do wrong? Okay, here's what they did wrong. They went overboard with the burnings and the lynchings, but we did it first. We burnt them at the stake. The scripture says, suffer not a witch to burn, but to put them to burn them. Who did that? Who did that? We did. We burnt them at the stake. So what did they do different than us? They did a little bit overboard. But everything they did, we did it first. That's the truth. Homosexuality, lesbianism, we did it. What is Paul talking about? He's saying in the scriptures, don't give up the use of the man or woman. I'm paraphrasing. Our people, he says it, 
point blank. Our people turned themselves, gave their bodies over to the flesh, men enjoying men and women enjoying women. We did all of that. We were cannibals, homosexuals, lesbians, and they still are not telling us what, listen, we have to tell us. Don't don't give a damn about what these Romans do. We have to tell us. We are we are responsible for that. When we took that for granted and did not pass that on to our children, we killed our babies. They lack morality. They lack work ethic. They lack self motivation. They are savage dogs who deserve to be put to death, period. And it's mercy that that we ain't all put to death. That's mercy. We should all be put to death for this wicked, treacherous way that we call ourselves being, quote-unquote, parents. Get into a relationship, doesn't work out. Now you got a baby mama and a baby daddy. I mean, come on. What is this? what is this? So here's my point. Back to the the, com- the commercial aspect. In knowing that, I'm telling you, all it is, it's as simple as being honorable to your word. You break your word, you should be brought to court. You should be. You should be tried. But, okay, now we know. United States, they'll pay it off. Why will they pay off all our debt? Because if they don't, nature will crush them overnight. If they don't provide their remedy, that is deceiving us. But then these people rise up talking about, oh, the real secret is accepted for value, HDR, 192, all this, right? Okay, sirs. How do you use this stuff? See, it's a secret. You pay me $1,200, I'll tell you the secret. I'll tell you how to do it. It's a secret. So you're telling me what's written in the law books is useless. The only one that knows this is you, and I got to pay you. Wait a minute. I'd rather pay an attorney $1,200 to deal with my debt. Then these crackpots, okay, so going further, watch. Now you go and deal with HGR-192. And you bring, there's a creditor's meeting. Understand HGR-192 is in bankruptcy court. There's a creditor's meeting. If you place in your documents and on the record that you have evidence of being defrauded by a so-called creditor, I guarantee you with everything that I am, that creditor is going to pull the hell out before they go through with that. They'll play you as long as they can play you. They'll play They'll play the law game. They'll keep you there as long as they can keep you there. 
But if you force them to where they have no more moves, they'll quit. They're not going to go into court and lie is my point. Now what did you do? It's truth versus falsehood, and you just defeated a creditor by truth. (laughs) Not by a promissory note. Not by a promissory note, by truth. So if I can prove the other party has defrauded me and I show where they are wrong, there is discharge. Simple. Anybody lost? Anybody got a question? Anybody got a comment? Sir. Yes, sir. So the process to prove them that you've been harmed is the bankruptcy and the filing. That's one process, yes. The other one is the administrative process. But both of those, the bank does the administrative, I mean, excuse me, the bankruptcy court trustee does the administrative process for you. Right. But that's it. All it is is truth versus falsehood. What is the administrative process? Um, tell me, here's a qualified written request. I'm just penalties and perjury of perjury. Pains and penalties of perjury. Tell the truth. Do I really owe you? Do you really have evidence that I owe you? Now, if they come on there and give you a written signature and they lie and they know that they're lying, Come on, that's all this really is. And I'm telling you, you use this to defeat anything, truth versus falsehood. Now, the problem is you better make sure that you're on the right side of of truth. Okay, if I go into a court, claim I don't owe them anything. Okay, we got to, I'm not going to say shoot. We have an individual in the nation that's going through an issue right now in court. For the last, uh, I want to say three months, I've been helping them every step of the way. All I'm doing is talking, getting their head clear to see it first. So I'm saying they're, they're, this, this other party said that these, uh, this member didn't pay their rent, so they're trying to evict them out of the out of the place. But the fact is, they did pay their rent, and they did have evidence. They have all the evidence. So, if the other party knows that they're lying and they're trying to evict them, here's what the other party said. Listen to this. Our member went and confronted them and said, you're trying to take me, you're trying to sue me and take me to court claiming I owe you rent and you know I don't owe you rent. The other party says, I know I just want you to the house. So I said, what does that mean? I said, think, think. I'm trying to pull this out of them. Where's the issue here? What's the truth? What's the falsehood? Falsehood is, 
he's trying to sue you for back rent that you don't owe. Now, what if you tell the judge and prove to the judge that this individual brought up a fraudulent court case talking about you owe them and they consciously know that you don't, and then they told you that they're only doing that because they want to kick you out of the house. They just don't like you. What if the judge finds that out? What do you think is going to happen? And it happened just like I said was going to happen. The judge is going to get ticked off and is going to give you whatever you ask, but they went to pretrial first, and then the other party's trying to tap out. The individual in the nation has no attorney. They got a team of attorneys, and they're trying to tap out. They're trying to settle. They offered a settlement. They said, we'll give you such and such amount of dollars, and you can stay there for such and such amount of time. But uh, if you take the settlement, then you just move out. And I said to this member, I said, that's up to you. You have to decide that. And they said, nope, I'm not doing it. Now the attorneys are scared to death. And they're like, where did this individual come from? How do they know this stuff? Everybody else wants to go to law school and read all these secret books and it's truth versus falsehood. Lynn, are you understanding what I'm saying, brother? Yes, Salama. Um, it, it makes uh, it makes sense to me. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's almost like I think we were having another discussion where. You know, the subject came up about, you know, how the Moors, you know, they want to deal with, you know, all of these statutes, um, but they don't, they don't, they, they look at it from a statutory perspective and they think they're looking at it, you know, from a lawful perspective, but the law is, I mean, it's just much simpler, you know, and, and you know, another example of that would be, you know, how a, you know, how a physician looks at disease and, and um, just lack of uh, uh, wellness, you know, both physical and mental, how, how, what their approach is as opposed to something like a naturopath or a natural healer or, or even a Dr. Savy type. You know, you, you have this one side of the coin where they try to make things seem so, you know, mysterious and so complicated. And then when you really boil it down, it's, it's, it's really very simple. You know, to your point, you know, you you either dealing with truth or you dealing with falsehood. That's, that's pretty much the gist of it. Are you? Everything is truth versus falsehood. That's all a contract dispute is. That's all that's going on when you go into court, when you go into bankruptcy court, when you're getting bills or notices. They're trying to get you to, to either acquiesce by not answering, which means you can't defend it because you know you're wrong, so they got you defeated. But if you flip it on them and you know you're not wrong and they start sending stuff to you and you start hitting them back with the truth, mind you, they're not going to take you to a court. 
and lies. They might take you to a court. They might go through preliminary hearings. They might go and play the long game, particularly an attorney. If the attorney gets paid by the hour, the attorney is going to know that they're going to lose, and they're not going to go through with that case. They're not going to do it. I don't care what it is. <laughs> they're not going to do it. They know what's true and what's not true. Now, in some senses, if they don't actually know the truth, then they, they might go through it because they don't really know the truth. But if they know, they're not going to go through with it. So here again, why is HJR 192 a remedy? Why? Is it because they defrauded us? No. Is it because the people that teach it don't know what the hell they're talking about is already invoked in the bankruptcy court? Okay, why does discharge work? Because the United States government, they made the, the, the deals on behalf of their posterity, their bloodline. They transferred the debt to the slaves. The slaves have to be able to say, they have to be able to buy their way out of slavery. So they have to be able to get that debt off of them when they get educated enough on how to do it. And stop playing goddamn games. Excuse my language. Niggas play games with this stuff. That's what gets me so riled up. Living these fake-ass lives, man. Like you're so holier than thou. Like you're such a good individual soul. And you're wicked as hell. <laughs> you're a fraud. Lazy, shiftless. Blame shifting frauds. Want to come and worship, light up candles on the manure thing, right? Write up, light up seven, eight candles, whatever, right? Oh, I did the candles. Negro, did you call in the work sick? Did you lie to your job? Because <laughs> Jewish people don't have to do that. Guess what? Jewish people, everybody else knows is if you work for somebody other than your own nation, that that's automatically bond servitude. We're supposed to teach us this and grow out of it without blaming somebody else. Not taking away the wickedness that they've done. That's, they're not our problem. The remedy is there. Simplified in your mind. Truth versus falsehood. Ask yourself, if I put it on paper and claim that this paper is backed by something of value and it's backed by nothing but some damn laws that they wrote on it, where's the evidence of a promise to perform according to that instrument? Show me the evidence. Every single time you're going to run into that promissory note, bonded promissory note, all of that garbage, are you going to find out that they're trying to discharge that debt based on nothing? Nobody's going to perform. They have nothing of value or consideration that's backing the note. 
So that instrument is in fact counterfeit or counter fiat. Anybody confused about that? Brother Robert, what do you see in that? No, brother, this is plain James. Plain James, brother. Uh, a lot of it, you know, what you brought up, brother, is just having the ability to have abstract reasoning. You know, once you attain that aspect of dealing in terms of abstract reasoning, I mean, you'd be able to sort out a lot of these issues. But again, our people, we have to be, again, re-educated on these particular things and uh, reintroduce them. Yes, brother. You know what? All these so-called Hebrews, holier than thou, this and that. Read Deuteronomy 28, right? And don't comprehend it, period. I'm telling you, it is so clear that 99% don't get it. Mm-hmm. Also, brothers, it's just pretty much what you just mentioned. It's just basically balancing the ledger and restitution. Yes, sir. That's right. That's right, brother. You can't even run a home. You can't even have a civilized home. You got to have a broken home. Rampant in the community. And these beings call themselves nobles. They get no respect from their woman. They give no respect to their woman. But they're nobles. Come on, man. They didn't go to a school of thought. They didn't go through an order, any scholastic education. They went and bought affairs, and now they're nobles. They had the same behavior as they did before they bought their affairs. They had the same behavior as they did before they put on those Hebrew garments. They can quote a whole lot of scripture, but they can't reason themselves out of a matchbox. It is so simple. This just happened the other day. Brother said, this brother that just recently got approved into the nation. I hit him with this. Listen to me carefully. He said, I asked him a couple of questions. and said, listen, brother, did you come from a camp? No. We don't teach that the white man is the devil. We do teach that he is a beast and he is our enemy. But we do not teach that the white man is the devil. We don't teach all Caucasians or Edomites. Now, when I said this to him, He was confused as hell because when I got on the line with him, he was all angry and hyped up. Yeah, the white man's the devil. Yeah, I love my people. I said, brother, there's no verse in the Bible that says the white man is the devil. So he hits me, Romans 9, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. See, that means that the most high hates 
all Edomites. So I said, brother, Deuteronomy 22 says, thou shalt not abhor an Edomite. What does that mean? It means you should not hate an Edomite. Now, I dealt with this first with him now. Now, listen what happened to him. He was, he was confused as hell. Didn't understand. Oh, I thought I'm supposed to hate all Edomite. When there's a scripture that is a direct command that says, thou shalt not hate an Edomite, and you got a whole body of people that are teaching that God hates Edomites. That's not what the scripture says. It's telling you not to hate the Edomites. Then I said, next issue. There are no more Edomites. So they're peddling that doctrine because they gathered from the nation of Islam and they turned Adam into Edom. And that Yaqub story, they put that on Jacob and Esau. The Bible tells you that the first people that were leprous and pale and, and albinism were Israelites. The first lepers, Moses applied this to Israelites. I gave him some stuff to go listen to. The brother came back, called two weeks later. Totally different spirit. This brother said to me, he said, Brother Priest, our people are out there misleading them. They're out there telling these people lies. That's right, brother. And they're supposed to be the prophets and the leaders. The Christ said, beware those wearing long robes that are standing in the marketplace. They love to be seen. There's only one body of people that are Hebrews that are standing on the streets in the marketplace wearing <laughs> long robes. And he said, that, yeah, and he said, listen to them. But don't do what they do. See, they're the Sadducees and Pharisees. You're supposed to listen to them because you're going to learn something. You're going to learn good and bad. So he said, listen to them, but don't do what they do. Okay. Now, look at this. The white man's the devil. He put us in slavery. Okay. What did you do to get in slavery? No, see, he's the devil. Okay, you're missing the point. Now, everything these guys are teaching is based on something that the Most High has as a commandment, thou shalt not do. What? Wait a minute. Thou shalt not do this, but these guys are telling you to do it? You have never heard Brother Priest say hate anybody for the color of their skin or their nationality. I will never teach that. Never. I'm not saying don't be angry and don't hate what they do. That's permissible. You can be angry. You can hate what they do. But when it comes to 
a blatant lie, hate Edomites, thou shalt not hate Edomites. You telling me I know that scripture and you think they don't? <laughs> oh, man, come on, man. And then if you ask them about it, which I have, then they say, oh, abhor doesn't mean hate. So now you're changing the definitions of words to fit your sickness. All trying to escape the fact that we did wrong, we have to answer for it. So when we go back to commerce, truth versus falsehood. I'm a bond servant. I'm supposed to know that I'm a bond servant. My parents were supposed to teach me that. But they didn't know. They forgot. They started worshiping idol gods and set this law, government, commerce aside. And they started praying to some mythological gods that cannot do anything for us. They don't even, these myths don't even have laws. <laughs> so guess what happens? Niggas come up and they start making more religions more false gods. Today, sovereignty is a, is a god. Now, sovereignty is the real god. I mean, come on, man. They don't made that into another god, another religion, and they're going to keep doing the, the next thing, the executrix letter is the god. You know what I mean? Sir. Come on, uh, I mean, that's why I'm so appreciative of everything that we're learning here in the nation. But the, I got a question about um, Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, and, and the Catholic Church. And because of uh, everything that we're learning here and what we just went over and what you just spoke on in regards to Edom, you know, they the, like the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, uh, Church on Sunday, Man, they, they've used crafty tactics to vex us and to oppress us. So I understand we're guilty of idolatry. I understand we're at fault. But we, you know, some of it they've duped us, <laughs> you know. So when you mention that about uh, all of Edom was gone, and I went to Exodus 17 and 16. I, you know, we, I, you don't, you don't really cover too much of the scriptures. So I'm hoping in the future we can go over some stuff so we can get some clarity on, on some stuff because you're right. There are a lot of the other doctrines that's out there that are very misleading, and that's why I'm appreciative of what you're teaching us. But uh, I just want to, you know, at some point when we go over, just like those two scriptures that I just brought out right there. I mean. When you look at the U.S. Constitution, we looked at it as, as basically cattle. And, you know, that's not fair. It doesn't mean what you think it means. That's why it is fair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. so serious. I'm so serious. Do you? This is what it's really talking about. It's talking about two-thirds of a, of a corporation as, okay. a, as, a, as a quorum to be able to speak up as electors. See, uh, two-thirds of a man, What is a man can be singular or it can be a body. See, if you see what I'm saying, you see the absolute ignorance 
complete ignorance in comprehending the law. Right. They don't have a voice. They don't have a quorum, meaning enough people to be unified to cast a voice. They don't have enough of those. It does not mean what these niggas have interpreted it to mean. And even if it did, it would still be right because we are movable property. <laughs> when you got to, when you got a bunch of lazy ass niggas, they're, they're porch monkeys sleeping all goddamn day, drinking beer, watching video, um, TV, playing video games, right? All the depictions that the Klan put on us, these niggas like to eat and sleep. They don't like to work. They try to make excuses for everything they do, right? That ain't me saying this. That's the Klan. And they hate that. I hate it. So am I a Klan member now? No, but... Here's my point. The reason why I don't go like that, brother, because I was not taught like that. The reason why I don't go scripture for scripture, line by line, because my teacher said that they came here to teach us how to read it. And damned if they didn't teach it. So as we're talking, we're talking the scriptures. Another point is, brother, the people in the scriptures didn't sit down and teach the scriptures. They didn't have classes on verse by verse. The only class that they had on was going over the laws, the statutes, and the commandments. That's all they ever taught. They taught government. They didn't teach. Read. Job verse this. They did not teach that way. They never stayed that way. So, when you see it through the eyes of law, and then you just, I know they've done wrong to us, brother, but don't think about the wrong that they've done when you read it. So, yes, I don't know the exact verse that you're trying to point out, but if a man leads into captivity, he should be taken into captivity. If a man steals a man, he should be put to death. I've been around Hebrew Israelites for my life. And I know the stuff that they do. And I'm telling you, whenever you really look at it, it's going to always come back down to us taking care of ourselves and being responsible for ourselves. They want to point out the wickedness. Yes, sir. So, um, Brother Priest, so with you making that statement, um, as far as, uh, you know, that misinterpretation on three-fifths of a, a man, and you're saying that it's talking about a man, are, are they meaning that in law um, they're saying that you're only three-fifths of a body as in a body politic? Yes. Two-thirds and three-fifths equal in the same, but yes. Two-thirds being the two-thirds of Israel, being the three-fifths, same thing. Yes. 
Because yeah, listen, essentially, if if you just if we just look past, um, I mean, listen, I don't like what happened during the, the transatlantic slave trade no more than anybody else, but I understand it. It's really not for us to like. It is only for us to understand. So here's what I'm saying. When you have a bunch of people that will not govern themselves, that don't know the position of their man, the man doesn't respect the woman, the woman doesn't respect the man, they don't know how to conduct themselves in a relationship, they don't know how to raise children, all they do is feed their children fantasies and fairy tales called religions. That's all they do. And this mythological religion is going to save them. They don't have to eat right. They don't have to think right. They don't have to have the proper uh, intimate life. They don't have to have the proper sex life. They can be as savage as they want to be, but they can still pray to Jesus and it's all okay. Look, you can't sell me that. You can wrap it up and what you can wrap turds up in candy corn, and I'm still not going to buy it. I'm not going to bite into it. I'm not going to buy it because I can see through it. Our principles and our morals are destroyed. Our common sense is destroyed. So they're going to read scripture with a doctrine of devils. And Paul warned against that. In the end times, it was going to come those that are preaching doctrines of devils. Now, who is preaching doctrines of devils except for Hebrew Israelites? The white man is the devil. Everybody's a goddamn devil, but you niggas that are the lying deceivers. You're the devils. <laughs> Beware those that are coming. They're going, in the end times, they're going to deviate from government, this is Paul in the book of, I think it's 1st Timothy maybe 2nd Timothy um, in the end times they're going to come those if I misquote that scripture, forgive me they're going to come those who are going to deviate from the original faith and turn to preaching doctrines of devils so what do they tell you that means if they're Hebrew Israelite? So you preaching Christianity. That's not what Paul, that's not even the connotation that Paul was speaking in. He was talking about them villainizing everybody outside of them as devils. That's what Paul meant. What do they mean? They mean that that's the white man. And if you step back and you apply these things, you'll see it. Like if you step back and you go into the scriptures and you erase your mind from some other guy being absolute evil, you're going to see that the real evil one is a spirit within man itself. It's a state of mind within man itself. That's my point. It ain't got nothing to do with religion. Or, or nationality, or none of that. It has to do with a spirit, a state of mind that's in man, all of us. 
all of us. Simple as that. But yet we got deceivers amongst us and false prophets that are telling us, hey, come over here. Here's Christ. We have the real Christ. The rest of them don't. Many will come in my name claiming that I am Christ. He's telling you back then. There's going to come a whole bunch of people that are going to tell you that I'm Christ. And when they're telling you that I'm Christ, understand they don't understand what Christ really means. (laughs) It's plain as day. The whole world is lying saying that Jesus is Christ. Yeshua is Christ. Uh, what do they call it? Um, Yahawashai is Christ. They're spreading these lies. That's not true. He was operating in the Christ capacity. The Christ itself is the Holy Spirit, is the state of mind consciousness that is achieved through your life studies, preparing you for the position of king of Israel. So every king of Israel was a Christ. It really means, it's translated to mean anointed and all that, but it really means a government position of king with the right type of preparation, state of mind, and all that. Salama. Sir? Agbanar, child of Judah. Man, I just I just want to say, as far as this class tonight, I, I'm so full. It's like sitting at the table eating a, a, a juicy steak and with a baked potato. I'm so appreciative of uh, what you're sharing, what you're teaching us. Man, all praises to the Most High for this lesson tonight. Toda, thank you. Praise the Lord, brother. All praises to the Most High Almighty. I just, listen, I wasn't planning to be here, so... This is the spirit just forcing me to open my mouth. And we've been on here way too long, so I'm not going to hold us any longer. Um, But, brothers, just remember, um, actually, uh, let me see while I'm on this line. Let me make sure I open up this other material. Um, Just remember, when you're looking at this stuff, Truth versus falsehood, obligation, commitment, responsibility, duty, all is a performance. A performance. A performance. So you cannot write up a negotiable instrument backed by nothing. And I wrote a, a little explanation of private banking. We were talking about private banking before, like uh, last year, but I wrote up an explanation of how we can do the same thing that Lloyd Williams is talking about and how you can do it as an individual. We have too many obstacles, brothers. That's why we got to work together. We got to work. The world seems like it's against us. And, yeah, it is against us. 
the universe is against transgressors. People that cannot unify, have protocol and order, they're too good for that. Most High hates that. So how is it carried out? Society hates us because of that. You can't raise your children. You abandon your woman. (laughs) You leave her with children to raise by herself. And you wonder what's wrong with the children. They don't have a balance of male and female influences in their life. That's what's wrong. Now, you, you can't... Listen, divorce is unheard of in Jewish communities and Amish communities. It's unheard of. I'm not saying that there's not times where that's necessary. There's times where that's very necessary. But that means that they're choosing properly. They're in, and even in the divorces of Amish people, the mother and father are still actively in their children's lives. The mama ain't running off saying, oh, you can't talk to my baby. You know what I'm saying? We're destroyed because of our own unwillingness to really love each other and go by protocol. You try to put protocol on niggas, oh, he think he better than me. Just because he has a different ranking, just because he has a different skill set than do you, which qualifies him for that position, now you turn around and say that this guy thinks he's better than you? I mean, the depth of the sickness this is really there. Well, we do have beautiful traits. Anyway, um, what I'm going to open up while we're on this line is going to be called Mortgage Elimination. And it goes hand in hand with what we were looking at last week. So it's going to be, um, I'm going to open both of them up so we can discuss it next week. Soon to come, we're going to, I'm going to pull out the promissory notes and the electronic voters fraud and dealing with traffic tickets. You're going to see this stuff in the, in the next couple of weeks in class. You're going to see how deep this gets. I've been talking too much. I'm tired of hearing myself talk. <laughs> so, all right, with us, bro. I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind, bro. And I know the brothers don't mind. We love to hear you talk, brother. Oh, Lord. That, I'm, I'm really self-conscious about that. You wouldn't know it, but I really am. So, a side note, I'll. Sir, um, as a side note, um, on those, those two property leases, can you give me a price or the a purchase price? Um, because that's, that's the only thing I don't have. Whatever you sent is what I sent to you. So I I didn't even look at it too closely. So. Okay, uh, I, that's, that's that's all I need to know. I, I'll make uh, my best good effort. Okay, great, great, great. Uh, 
Yes, sir. So um, thank you all for being here, and um, we'll join to next week. Shalom. Shalom. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.